Man, go ahead, have a seat. Usher's is going to come forward. Let's give out how God has given to us because it's all from him. It's all for him. It's all going back to him. Uh, if you're here for the first, second, or third time, your gift to us today uh, is to let that basket go by. And then as soon as you get outside today, we've got an info table that's going to be on your right-hand side. And there's a gift for you there. So get your uh, Get Connected card, drop that off there, and then go home with something for us. Just our way of saying thanks so much for being with us today. As you walked in, you should have gotten one of these uh, without the chicken scratch on top. That's to remind me of a few things. One of those is today, right after this service, we've got our new here lunch. If you look at this place and you're like, no, I know nothing about this. I'm new here. Man, it's perfect for you. Uh, we'll serve you lunch. And we'll explain who we are as a church, where we're headed, what we're excited about, how you can get excited about that too and involved in that too. Uh, that is going to be right in our kids' church room, which is uh, before you get outside on your right, just our way of saying, hey, here's who we are. We'd love for you to jump in with us. Second thing is Friday night is the Live the Mission Banquet, what Pastor Greg talked about. Uh, there's still opportunities to buy a table and fill it with some of your friends, uh, or you can sit with one of us. If you're interested in going that, just stop by the info table, tell them that, or tell me, or Pastor Greg, or Pastor Tim. Uh, there's a smattering of us who have tables, and we would love it if you sat with us. It's a great opportunity for us to get to know each other outside of the hustle and bustle of Sunday mornings, and we're excited to have you there. This is for something that happens on Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday is this week, which means we got like seven weeks until Easter. Uh, and this is an opportunity for us to like pause life and remember uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross to bring us in relationship with him. Uh, it's a chance for us and our culture of busy, 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 go, 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 to intentionally press pause and say, God came for me. God put skin on, lived in the person of Jesus so that I could have a relationship with him. Uh, and so the info for that is at the bottom your paper, uh, but also starting Wednesday, it, uh, it the Lent season begins, and that's our chance uh, to set something out in life, take something out of life that's going to remind us to pray. So food is the natural response. We fast from food because uh, our body then reminds us to pray. Like every so often, your stomach is saying, hey, I'm, I'm alone here. Uh, you should pray. And so food reminds us to pray, but there's also a ton of other things where we could temporarily go without uh, so that we can be reminded to pray. And there's also sorts of info in there about how we can jump in as a church in that. I encourage you to dive in. It's going to be a great opportunity for us as a church to look to what God is doing uh, around Easter and how that pertains to us. So today, uh, we're continuing a series uh, called Living in the Will of God. It's about the book of Titus, uh, which Titus takes place on the island of Crete. Titus is a pastor on this island. It is geographically beautiful, and it is morally disgusting. Uh, the Cretans thought that they were the birthplace of Zeus, the Greek god, and he became a god because he would run all over the island, uh, seducing women, impregnating women, and then leaving women. So that was how he became famous, and that was kind of the ethos of the island. And so this is a place where a church gets planted because people need Jesus. And even in a place that's morally debauched and messed up and, and all sorts of craziness like that, a society where men run around and seduce and impregnate and then leave, that's a place where Jesus needs to be lifted up. That's a place where people need to know that their sins can be forgiven, that there's new life in Jesus, and there is restoration in Jesus. And so a church starts there. And it's run by a guy named Titus. And so the book of Titus is a letter from Paul, a guy who started churches all around the Mediterranean world, to Titus, explaining this is how you live in the will of God. This is how you conduct life. This is how you do life uh, around people who don't care about God. This is how you live for God in this. And so what we're going to look at today... 
uh, is chapter two, verses one to 10, where Paul begins to get specific. Like it's no more generalities. It's no more, this is how you should live if you follow Jesus. He goes in on six different groups of people and says, this is how I want you to live. And for all of us, the point isn't to get more information because we're not going to be told anything radically new. We're going to be reminded today of stuff that we already know. We're going to be reminded of what we already know to live out what we already know. This is a challenge for us to step into the life transformation that Jesus has bought for us, that the Holy Spirit has empowered us for, not just to do life on our own, making our own decisions anymore, but to say, okay, God, how do you want me to live as the place where you've put me now at this age status, and just life going as it is? How do you want me to live? And so verse one, Paul talks, Paul goes after Titus right away, the leader. He says, as for you, I want you to promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. I want your life to reflect the Bible in a way that's authentic to the Bible. It's going to be totally different from your culture, from people around you, because you're going to stick out as something new. You're going to be wholesome. And so from there, he begins to break it off. How is this going to look like for other people and for Titus as well? And so the first group of people that he goes after are older men. He says, I want you to grow old well. I want you to make Jesus look good. And in doing that, I want you to grow old well. And I think there are two different ways that we can grow old. This is specifically for guys, but it relates to everybody else. First way is milk, right? That's not growing old well. Milk, as soon as it's expired, like you want it gone. You want it away from you. You don't want to open it and see if it's still good. Like you look on the outside and you're like, this is bad. You open it up and just like being the old people that we don't want to be, it's going to smell. Like nobody wants that for their life. I am bitter, I am expired, and I smell. That's how I want to grow old. Like that, that's not good. This is one way for us to grow old. And so Paul, Titus, it, Paul's message to Titus is saying, you want your old men to grow old well. Not to grow old smelly. I want you to grow old well. And this is how you grow old well. All right? That is about a week old. Disgusting. Not opening it. Not interested. This is older than all my kids. And we were looking at it beforehand. Like, it's perfect. Nobody gets rid of a baseball glove because it's old. You get a new baseball glove, and you're immediately trying to make it old. You're trying to break it in. You're trying to oil it. You want it to be old because once it's old, it's useful. And for us, we want to be a church of guys, specifically because that's what he goes after first, guys who grow old well. We don't want to grow old expired and bitter, and nobody wants us around. In fact, we come over, we end up in their refrigerator, and they're like, hey, get that person out of my house. They're expired. I don't want them around anymore. We dump them down the sink. We squish it and stick it in the recycling bin and then get it out as fast as possible. We want to grow old like this. Where people look at it and like, man, I, I want that. I want that type of wisdom. I want to reflect what Titus uh, is told that how the old men should live, how they should act. So verse two, he says, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Man, that's a mark of how to grow old well, you know? Nobody's going to, as we grow older, none of us are going to get criticized for being too loving, for being too patient to be too wise, to be too self-controlled. But for so much of us, me included, like that's part of what we want to grow into. We want to grow into being self-controlled. We want to grow into wisdom. 
Because of our demo as a mobile church that sets up every Sunday and tears down every Sunday, we've got a quick turnaround of everything and lots of physical labor behind it, uh, we generally trend pretty young. So we don't have a plethora uh, of old men in general. We don't have a plethora of old men who do life well. Also, just because we don't have a whole lot of old people. Uh, but you know, one guy who does life well and has aged more like a mitt than uh, like milk and who I get to learn from uh, is Joey. Uh, Joey is the guy who does Spanish translation. So the best part about the next two minutes is everything that I say, Joey is going to have to say about himself. So I don't know what awkward is in Spanish, but he's living it right now. Um, so a while ago, Joey and I ended up on the same hospital visit. There was a family here in the church that was having surgery. Not the whole family, just one person. And so we went just to pray for him, just to love on him, and then leave. That's, that's the rule of hospital visits, is you're loving and you're fast, and you're loving because you're fast. All right, there are people at the hospital who should show up in the hospital and stay in your room for like an hour. They're called nurses and doctors. I'm neither of those. So the goal in a hospital visit is you go in, you love, you pray, you love by leaving after you pray. And so I went in first and Joey said, remember, you're, you're loving, you're fast, and, and you're loving. And you're loving because you're fast. You get out of there. Uh, and I was not fast. So I walk out like 20 minutes later and Joey's there sitting in the waiting room. And he looks at his watch and he says, that was not loving because that was not fast. I'm like, yep, you're right. You got me. Uh, this is how we grow in this. And, and the best part that I love about Joey is that's not the first mistake that I've made around Joey. Uh, but what he's been consistent in, in being a man who grows old well, uh, is he takes my mistakes. He takes my shortcomings. He takes all the areas where he knows about me that I am so limited. And instead of saying something where I would look like, Dewey, Joey, you're expired, man. Like, that was mean. That smells. That was really bad to say. Uh, it's more like a mitt where it's like, this is the correction that I needed. This is the love. This is the mercy. This is self-control. This is the patience. All those things that we read about. And that's how we want to grow old. We want to grow old like a mitt, not like milk. And so that's with the men. With the older women, he says, I want you to grow honorable with age. I want you to grow honorable with age. Verse 3, he says, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good. That's the wrong passage. Similar, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they must teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women. He says, I don't want you to slander. I, whenever we talk about certain sins, like that's more guy-driven, right? For, if we're talking about lust, if we're talking about porn, that's typically going to be more towards guys, which means that on other stuff, i.e. gossip, hey, we get to just take a back seat. Uh, all of us know that friend that we should never, ever share anything sensitive with because it's not going to stay with them. It's going to go out. And before we know it, it's going to get back to us twisted 50 different million ways that it's not the thing that we said initially and makes us look so much worse. Thing is, we grow up for men, for women. We don't want to be a conduit of information that spreads everything, even sensitive stuff, really, really fast. We want to become a dam of information. Like, think about that. You got the, you got the hills, you got the lake, and you got a massive concrete wall that doesn't let anything through it. Paul, the guy who's writing this, he's saying, I want you to grow up to be a dam of information where you can hold people's secrets tightly because you love them and you will never say a word. And you grow up with a repu reputation. You develop over time as you grow honorable with age that you're a person that someone can come to and confess anything and know that it's not getting out through that dam. That, that wall is thick. That wall is supported. That wall is pressed up against the sides of the mountain and there is nothing that gets through there. That's encouragement for us. 
You know, as we know people, as we do life together, as you join up to, as you sign up to join a life group, which you can do as soon as you walk out outside, you're going to talk about life. And one of the good things that we get to model as a group is that as a group, we become a dam of information. At the places where we meet, whether it's in a home, whether it's at church, whether it's at Starbucks, we are a dam of information. That's what's said around that table stays at that table and never leaves. And there's no limit to the older there. I love that part. He says, I want you to grow, to grow old with, with honor and that we're all growing old as we are alive. We're never going to be as young as we are right now, which means that for those of you who are in junior high who just escaped kids' church and you're like, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not older, you're older than somebody. There's a second grader who's looking at you to figure out how you do life, how you're going to survive, like how bad junior high is and all the horror stories that you're like in the middle of it. And you're like, this is pretty cool. I enjoy this. But somebody's looking to you to see how to do life. You grow older, you hit college, you hit early married years, you hear it all that stuff, and somebody younger than you is looking at you. And so we get to model. The reason that Paul talks about sobriety there is because people are watching. He said, I want you to grow older with age as a woman who isn't enslaved by wine. I want you to go older because there are people that are looking at you and they're going to see you do life well. And so you're going to grow older training people, not by default because, well, I'm watched and there's nothing I can do, but by design where you say, this is the opportunity that God has given me and I want to live this out so other people can follow my example and have it lead to good things. So he goes older men, he goes older women, now he goes younger women. And he says, I want you to grow in your freedom in Christ. Verse four, for real this time. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive, I'm gonna get back to that, to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. So that, I, that idea of a woman being submissive to her husband, a woman being excited about going home with her husband and with her kids and, and investing in the, those places as she invests outside the home, that was something that was totally on its head in Crete in that day. It's this idea that the new Roman woman, if you're going to be a woman and be a good Roman citizen, that means that you're going to ditch your husband, you're going to ditch your kids because those are shackles that hold you back, and you're going to live out in front of everybody promiscuous and immodest and untied to a home. Sounds familiar. Like this is our culture here. And Paul is saying that this isn't how I want you to live because this is going to bring shame on God. This is going to make God not look good. Our goal today is we look at old men, old women, um, young women, young men, leaders, and other areas is that we're going to make Jesus look good. And he's saying by staying with your husband, by committing to marriage and staying in marriage, you're making Jesus look good. By raising up kids like we celebrated with Ivan and Joanna up here, we're, we're raising up kids to love and follow Jesus. And I know as a parent, sometimes that takes everything out of you. And what he's saying is as we surrender to that, as we invest in that at home and then model that out to the watching world around modesty, around the exclusivity of marriage and, and the significance that comes from monogamy in marriage, we're making Jesus look good. And the idea around submission, that's a, that's a bad word, that's one of those code words, uh, one of those trigger words here, uh, is that Christianity is just flat out good for women. Like what was said up here a little bit ago, uh, that, that in other places where Christianity, Christianity hasn't yet gone, where the gospel hasn't gone, the good news of Jesus is not known, it's not good for women. It's not good for women in Islam, Islamic cultures. It's not good for women in Mormon cultures. It's not good for women in secular cultures because they're not elevated like they would be within a Christian home where they are married to a husband who serves God. The idea of submission, it, it's something that goes both ways, but it definitely goes from women to men as it goes from men to women. 
The same guy who wrote this, he writes in a different place to a different city. He says, submit yourselves to God. Both of you, everybody, this is an eight billion way race for last place to put other people above ourselves as we all follow after Jesus. And then within your home, husbands, you will love your wives as Jesus loved the church. And as the church is safe in Jesus's control, husbands, our job is to create an environment in our homes where our wives are safe to submit to us. Think about it, women. If, you, if uh, you leave here and some man, any man, anyone, uh, takes you up to the airport and puts you on a private jet and sends you to Hawaii, you will have no problem submitting to whatever they tell you to do, whichever seat they tell you to sit in, however they tell you to sip your tea uh, as you're flying to Hawaii. We're going to have no problem submitting to those rules. Our fear and submission is that we are going to submit ourselves to something that is ungodly, something that will tear us down, something that will hurt us. And what Titus is saying, what is being said to him, is men, you create an atmosphere, create a place where your wife wants to submit to you. And you do that by giving everything, even if it's your very life, to protect her, to lift her up, to make yourself submission worthy. And that creates an opportunity, that creates an environment where the call to submission is valid where it's not dangerous, where it's not bad. And I know there's the thought in the head, okay, but what if I do this and he doesn't respond? What if I do this and it hurts me? What if I do this and it creates a bad place for my kids? Then your husband, the father of your children, has to deal with the fact that he just created a toxic environment for God's daughter. That's bad. So it's on us, guys. We create an environment where our wives want to submit to us, where it's good for them to submit to us, and then we let them make the choice. We let them follow God as we are following God. And, and men, as you lead in this way, and women, as you follow men and encourage them as they lead this way, it's going to be something that makes Jesus look good. Be a Christian man worth submitting to, and women, find a Christian man worth submitting to because it's safe to submit. Next, he goes to young men. He says, I want you to grow in wisdom. I want you to grow in wisdom because stupid is not age-specific, but it really likes certain ages, all right? You watch videos. My kids love watching America's Funniest Home Videos right now, and there are so many videos of just people of all ages being stupid. But here he says, I want you to avoid being stupid by being wise. Stupid is not specific, but neither is wisdom. He says, verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. Encourage the young men to live wisely. I had a meeting this week that I loved. Like, I came out of that feeling so good. Uh, it wasn't because of who it was with. Uh, it wasn't because of anything else other than the fact that I had the same meeting 18 years ago when I was this kid's age. The only problem was I was on his side of the table instead of mine. He came out to me. He's like, hey, I think I want to get involved in ministry. This is a place where I can get involved. I think this is what I want to see happen. This is all these things. He's laying out this scenario that 18 years ago, I would have looked at and I said, yes, absolutely. That's a great idea. You're going to do, go do that. And everything that you've said is totally going to happen regardless of the fact that X, Y, and Z isn't happening in your life. And instead of him, instead of me green lighting his plan, which was my plan 20 years ago, I told him, no, you should not do any of that stuff. Because I've already walked that road. I've already seen the way that that transpires. I sat in your seat, and now I get to see what I get to see at 38, what you can't see at 20. Let me tell you what I've learned. Let me pay the stupid tax for you. There's a great saying that I really like, and you can paste it into your life this week. Smart people just know what to do. All right? So if you think, I don't know what to do in life. I'm not smart. I'm not smart. Don't worry about it. Smart people know what to do. Wise people do what smart people do. All right? 
So for this kid coming out of the meeting, for him to be a wise person says, okay, I don't know all the answers. I haven't done 20 years of ministry already, but I know that guy has. And so if he's telling me to do something, if I'm going to be smart, I'm going to do that. If I'm going to be smart, I'm going to do what, or I'm going to be wise, I'm going to do what the smart people are telling me to do. And I think for us as young guys, uh, if you look at yourself, you consider yourself a young guy, your goal, your aim, where you want to end up is following somebody whose life doesn't look like this in three decades, but somebody whose life looks like this in three decades, which means, this is for guys and for girls, that you're not going to do marriage and you're not going to do relationships the way that your friends do it, and then you watch all of them destroyed around you. You're going to find somebody who's been killing it as a husband, as a wife for decades and say, I want to do what they do and I want to start now. You look at somebody who loves Jesus more than you could ever imagine and has been doing it for decades and you say, I'm going to start doing now what they're doing so that I can get there by the time that I'm that age. You look at the old people who are so generous, who are love giving money away. You're like, I'm going to start treating my money the way that they do. I'm going to start doing that now so I can live wisely. I don't have to know what to do because smart people know what to do. I can be wise. I can do what the smart people do and I can grow in wisdom. So he goes, older men, older women, young women, uh, young men, and then he goes after leaders. He says, leaders, I want you to grow in the seriousness of the cross. For us, that's God's reminder to us of how much he loves us and how far away from us we are. And while both of those things are true, it's the perfection, it's the perfect moment of God racing after us in our lostness to bring us to him. And so he's saying, leaders, I want you to grow in the seriousness of the fact that all people matter. And God is going after all people and God is sending people into the world to make a difference because lives are changed as people come to know Jesus. And he does this because the cross explains so much of life and it explains so much of what's important to us. He says, you yourself, you must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. He's saying this gives us purpose. This gives us meaning. This explains mission. This explains the why of why we breathe, why we do family, why we run a church, why we gather. This also explains how we suffer in defeat. It explains how we look at everything. And he's saying, I want you to take this seriously. Take it seriously that people have a lifetime to say yes to Jesus, but when it's over, it is over. So we live our lives on mission to see people say yes to Jesus before they go to die and face him. He's saying we take this seriously. And then there's a result. It says, then those who oppose us will be ashamed and they will have nothing bad to say about us. Man, that's a good line. It doesn't say that they will agree with us because we will win them over, because we can't control people's hearts. It says that we live in a way that makes Jesus look good to the point that people look at us and can't say anything bad about the way that we live, about the way that we treat others, about the way that we love people. So you grow in the seriousness of the cross, and it's going to be lifted up in the way that you live around people who are far from me. It's going to make a difference in their lives. But you know... What happens if we don't grow in the seriousness of the cross? Like, what happens if we fail on this one? Verse 9 gives us a picture. He says, slaves, you must obey, slaves must obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Talks about slavery. Slavery is the result of sin and people who don't live in submission to Jesus. And that's one of those things for us as Bible-believing Christians. We read the Bible and it talks about slaves. And that does not mean, one, that it's the same today as just having a bad boss. 
totally different. Slavery has been generationally uh, oppressive and repressive for us as a society, as a planet. It's totally not the same thing. And also, it's, uh, it's what happens when people don't take the Bible seriously, is they green light slavery. And they say that the Bible defends slavery when it doesn't. Because the central message of the Bible is that Jesus came to live in the world, to suffer and die and lower himself, to lift up the rest of the planet to come to know Jesus. You look at slavery and it's one group of people subjugating and oppressing and pushing down uh, an entire group of people for their culture to rise. And those two are not compatible. Slavery teaches uh, that different people are equal, but what the Bible teaches is that all people are equal at the foot of the cross, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And so what happens here is that people got lazy in their application of it. As Americans, we have to look at this and say that for those of us who are white-skinned, we were wrong. This was interpreted incorrectly. And I think we're still paying, uh, paying the price to, to repair the relationships between races because it started out poorly and it should not have started out poorly, especially if we take our Bible seriously. If we take the seriousness of the cross where Jesus came into the world to save the world, all continents, and bring it to him, we can't endorse slavery. It should have never happened. It was wrong. And the people who were responsible for that needed to answer to Jesus. Honestly, because they never knew him. Because we see in Jesus lowering every single right, every privilege, every this is mine to lift up others. And that's completely absent in a culture that endorses slavery. So why does Paul talk about slavery if it's so wrong? He talks about it because it's everywhere that you can see. He talks about it because it's a group of people that he's demonstrating for them a way to make Jesus look good. He's demonstrating for them what it looks like to follow God even in the middle of a, of a difficult circumstance. We're looking at what it is to live in the will of God. And sometimes that means following God where it's really, really difficult. And so he tells them to do difficult things. Obey your master. Why? Because a heart towards Jesus is going to obey whatever the circumstance is. To don't talk back, to don't steal. Why? Because Jesus suffered injustice, in honor, and in love so that we can suffer it too. It's our responsive obedience to what Jesus has done for us. It says, be entirely trustworthy and good. That's what Jesus did when people treated him like trash, when people wanted to kill him. Instead of getting his own vengeance, instead of getting back the payment that he could have incurred over everybody else, making everybody else pay for the things that they did to him, Jesus' cry was, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So in this sense, the slaves are the ones who are accurately modeling what it is to follow Jesus. And so we read this in 2020, looking at this, at the call to live a life that's difficult, still living it in a way that makes Jesus look good. And our response needs to be, God, so will I. If it's going to take me being nice to someone who I can't stand, my boss who is terrible, my coworker, my neighbor, my kids, my parents who are terrible to me, and then I'm going to make Jesus look good by doing those things in the midst of a dark relationship, in the midst of a difficult situation. I'm going to live out the love of God and make Jesus look good as I am. What's he say? I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to steal. I'm going to be trustworthy. I'm going to be good. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do my best to please them in the middle of it. And this is the type of life that makes Jesus look good. This is the type of life that takes our rights, takes our privileges, puts them on the side, and says, I'm going to do everything I can to lift up other people. As an old man who's growing old with wisdom, 
and growing old well, as a old woman who's growing honorable, as a young woman who's growing in my freedom in Christ, as a young man who's growing in my wisdom, as a leader who's growing in the seriousness of the cross, this is how I'm gonna make Jesus look good. I'm gonna do this for the benefit of other people. And that's why God sends us out of here. We're not just gathered here to feel good and then go home and press pause in our spiritual life until we come back. We're gathered here to take what God challenges us to, what God paved the way for in the cross for all of us, that we are already loved, we are already forgiven, we are already made new. Now go out and spread that to everywhere you go, to everyone that you meet, so that we can make Jesus look good. That's God's mission, that's God's hope for us, and that's God's empowerment for us as we live and serve for him. Let's stand and pray.